0: the private stash. In
1: 1996, I returned to Cascadia, to Olympia, Washington from the island of Guam where I'd lived for the last few years. And while I was there on those previous years, I had been you know, sling, slinging my, uh, my hemp products. I've been importing hemp uh, cloth from here and there and sewing it into objects. I've been making relationships with people who are uh, starting these different hemp businesses selling wallets and hats and paper pads and, and clothing and surfboard covers and all sorts of things. And I saw this was, you know, back in 1995 and all this excitement happening. It really was true. After years of sort of being on the fringe, it seemed like hemp was ready to take its place in the mainstream of commercial industrial culture. So there I was in Guam, and I sure enjoyed it. And there's some things to like about having a sunny day with a slight offshore breeze and scuba diving on Christmas. But, you know, I'm from Cascadia. I need my trees and I need my rain and all that. So I headed back to to go hop into this modern hemp movement and be part of changing the world. Well, maybe I was a little bit naive because when I uh, arrived in uh, Olympia, Washington, with my hemp overalls, I found that while there was, uh, you know, some companies doing some good things, there wasn't an overwhelming uh, rise in the public consciousness. But mm, I thought there was much reason for optimism. And as I started to think about what people needed, I was like, you know, there's not a really good piece of documentation that talks about what this point in time, you know, looks like, is in the in the hemp culture, for lack of a better word. And there's all these people doing these neat things, but there's, you know, there might be some trade associations, and there might be some indexes and magazines that they all read, but there wasn't a place, a way that you could get to know them all. So I decided I would, I came across an ocean to go make a film. It came out finally, and I filmed it in 1996, and it came out in 1997. It was called The Hemp and Road. Now, some 12 some odd years later, here I am high up in the hills of Lynn Valley, and I've pulled some papers out from the old binder. You see, I've kept a binder all these years with all like the stuff in it that I collected, all the notes, all the drafts, all the letters, all the ephemeral detritus that collects during a project like that, and somehow it survived. So before me, I have a few notes, and uh, before it completely fades from memory, and since there's been a bit of interest in it, you know, I thought I would try and give a little bit of background about how this project came to be, and some of the characters I met along the way, and also kind of the way I made the project, because for other people who are embarking on creative endeavors of their own, you might find a little bit of uh, wisdom in there. But before I get into it, you'll excuse me while I uh, have a swallow off my tasty dark beer and a hoot off my pipe. The film started like many great creative projects do, over a conversation uh, in some uh, college apartment with a, over a beer and a hoot, and in my case, it was with a Japanese uh, film student named Eiji. And A.G. was just like, that had this great cutting edge vision. And you guys know I've lived in Japan for quite some time, and uh, he really, he and I really shared the same aesthetic where we wanted this a real uh, mm, immersive kind of feel to the film where it was really kind of a stream of consciousness and a rollicking journey down the road, where it's much it's as much. Jim Jarmus or Richard Lester directing Beatles and Help, as it was uh, more so than it was like a 60 Minutes or a CBC style documentary. Came up with a name, and at first I called it Asanomichi, which is uh, the Hemp Road in Japanese, because you know. And then I realized no one would know what that meant, so I just decided to go easy. So I call it Hemp Road, and I put together a little website because you know you could do that then. It was 1996; it was brand new. You can make these things called websites, it puts words and pictures up on the internet. You share it with the people all the time. So I put a little description up and said, Hey, my name's Dave. I'm making this film. If you have a hemp business, we'd like to get you involved. And I started sending out emails to people saying, Hey, I'm Dave. I'm going to make this project. What we'd like to do is come to your city, come and just spend a day with you or an afternoon, just kind of see what makes you tick, see how your business runs, learn who your customers are, what the benefits of using hemp, see what your production workflow looks like, see where you go have coffee, that kind of thing. And I got a great response. It was, in fact, a little bit overwhelming. But... Along the way, uh, we were you know, shooting these interviews, but also creating all sorts of other media along the way, shooting stills, uh, recording audio, and I kept a production journal, which I would post up on the internet. It was like a journal with words and pictures, what the kids would call a blog today. So I'm, I'm going to hit you with just a little bit of this that I found from the first uh, uh, segment when it really hit the road, uh, which was going from Olympia up to Victoria here in BC. So if you'll indulge me for a few moments. I'm going to run through this because it gives you a real good flavor of, of kind of how the filming segments went and the kind of the characters you meet along the way. And then you repeat this Victoria segment in Seattle, Portland, Eugene, Olympia, and Vancouver, and you kind of got the gist of it a little bit. Pardon me while I have a sip. Hemp and Road, Victoria Filming Journey. So there we were, Olympia, Washington, 6 a.m., I quit my job by an early morning fax. The van's loaded, lots of cameras, mics, tapes, film, lights, sleeping bags, and ideas. The Olympia morning is dark, coldish, and drizzly. We drive north to the end of America, Port Angeles, top of the Olympic Peninsula, to catch the motor vessel Coho Ferry to the Northland. The ferry split at 8.20, we arrived later. So we wait, pancake breakfast at a wharfside diner, there's time to kill. So we shoot the pulp mills, piles of logs, rotting boats, newly painted buildings, sawmills, Piles of sawdust, smokestacks spewing, gray-blue-green sludge. The wind blows it away. We drive to the mountains into Olympic National Park. Sky is November, but it breaks clear and we capture shy mountain peaks by 16 millimeter. Majestic. More time on the dock. Roaches into the ocean. Roll into the swaying belly of the coho. Away we go. The crossing is cloudy and wet. A few bold oldsters remain on the bow, searching for whales or just getting wet. Some nice ambient shots and views of the deckhands hauling in thick rope dock lines. I think about old ocean-going vessels coursing across the seas with hemp and rope, sails, caulk and rigging. Victoria's dusk and grown since last I was here. Harborside condos and shopping malls. Still quaint, just not little. We roll off, cruise customs, and call EcoSource for our late appointment. Waiting for us at EcoSource was a delightful Swiss woman named Odette, who imports a beautiful array of top-quality papers from Eastern Europe. We talk talk paper, fiber, supply, demand, sustainability, and cooperation, capital, and the futures. Several recent magazines, brochures, and portfolios have used her fine eco-source papers. New products and ideas are coming together, and the future looks positive for this smart, gentle, hard-working woman. Odette gifted us several sample packs of paper, which we use for printing our business cards on. Works great, looks beautiful. Back downtown to a hostel. It's convenient, clean, albeit somewhat sterile. We haul gear into a locked room, sleep soundly till morning, wake up, move car to a legal parking spot, eat granola, soy milk, apple pie. I go find Ian Hunter, and he meets us for a cup of joa at an atrium cafe where we talk and drink fine beverages. Ian ranges topics and ideas as he eats a bagel and shares his thoughts from botany to bicycles to harm reduction. A man with a vision and a sense of future ways. We make our way inside the neat little paper box arcade to Sacred Herb, the hemp store. The windows and walls are covered with newspaper articles and letters about Ian's campaigns and actions. The shelves hold a ray of stock from clothes to books to seeds to lip balm. Especially intriguing to me was the support of base-level economics. All products have a barter value, and only cash or trade is accepted. No credits, no credit cards, no checks. This is a great way to rid ourselves of the yoke of dependence that banks tie us to. Sacred Herbs Groovin' manager, Sarah Bedard, shows us around and points out the many objects made by local artists, many of whom are living on the streets and weaving macrame, hemp macrame necklaces and other ornaments. They do brisk business with these. Sarah also makes some high hemp oil content lip balms and even a therapeutic type with tea tree oil and THC. We head out to the garden to talk with Ian about uh, some more about his mayoral campaign. He took third. He said he strolled rather than ran for mayor. He succeeded in bringing important questions and discourse about cannabis into the public forum. We'll see how he does in 2000. He also spreads free cannabis around the community. Next, Ian leads us up and around the corner to earthenware, which is a good contrast and complement to Sacred Herb. The owner keeps an elegant line of high-quality clothing in his very sharp boutique. We talk about his university studies, science stuff at University of Victoria, and about the ups and downs of doing business in regards to licenses, import, export duties, license permits, finance, and especially about doing business with Canadian companies to support a local economy. Based on his well made Canadian Canadian clothing, there are a number of fine manufacturers across the country. Outside of earthenware, we talked with Ted a local harm reduction and education and awareness activist. I just interject here, this guy Ted was a total character, but he does have a small little cameo in the film. I always point him out because, you know, there's a lot of these wingnuts, you know, where I, the guys that appear a little off kilter, right? And you got to give those dudes their say too, and at least they're good entertainment. But this guy was just, he was way out there. <clears throat> He's straight up and working hard, blah, blah, blah. Over across town to Zima Foods, where Eric and Alice are cleaning, flavoring, roasting, and packaging and marketing four flavors of hemp seed snacks. We munch as we film. They talk nutrition and public reaction while they were vending around markets and fairs this summer. They had such positive reaction that they are now selling in local stores and really bringing this delicious and healthy snack straight to the snacking public. They got uh, four flavors, teriyaki, Cajun, garlic, and sweet roast. Ooh, those sweet roast ones were really good too. Uh, We eat good uh, vegetarian buffet dinner at half price, and I find my old compadre, Colin, who I met in Mexico years back ago. Yeehaw, he's living on a sailboat just a few blocks away. Ian, uh, AJ and I meet Ian down, uh, downtown at a lecture to see renowned ethnobotanist and author Wade Davis speak. This was a total treat. Uh, he is from the area, but lived, traveled elsewhere since gaining his doctorate at Harvard. He spoke of South American adventures researching medicinal and spiritual plants used by indigenous people. Fascinating and inspiring. He switched between languages, topics, and times and managed to relate the history of of the region and tied to the last hundred years or more of Western science and thought. I was stunned and impressed. I wrote him a note telling him of our project, so maybe he'll drop us a line. That night, we checked out Eric's seven-headed jam machine called Dig at a club. They grooved hard, and it was neat to see another side of Zima Foods' inspiration. Head out with new friends to a 2 a.m. adventure around the harbor. It was more or less a wrap at this point. We relax, eat well, crash out our gracious host pad, and get up early to vacuum out the van. I can just imagine the border. No, officer, these aren't northern light seeds. They're teriyaki seeds. On to the ferry. Away we go. More rain. I sweep, sleep, AG films. It's hard to leave this lovely, tolerant, progressive, and prosperous town as we drive back from Port Angeles with the heavy rains dumping fury on us. Smile, thanks. Next up, Washington, Oregon. Stay tuned. Mm, now
0: that's some curious correspondence.
1: So that's kind of like the, was the little kickoff segment, and we did it over a series of weekends. And each time we just show up and kind of walk in with the cameras rolling, and and really saw a range of like people who were uh, rocking it with the dreadlocks and going to festivals to people who were like going to Rome and and you know entering their stuff in fashion shows and kind of getting all in that highfalutin space. So it was pretty interesting to see the the contrast of the of the characters that we found but you know people were really accepting and encouraging about our uh, project. Now from a technical standpoint we shot the film on all sorts of different media. There was a high 8 video, there was a lot of it but we also used Super 8 film, a 16 millimeter film and then uh, for, for all kinds, of mostly just kinda mm, visual stimulation throughout the film uh, but also worked in a lot of scanned images and a lot of uh, 35 millimeter just still camera shots. you know and then we took all the bits and pieces and uh, digitized them, but we could only really uh, make it about a nine minute segment of film at a time before having to clear the hard drives. So it was a real drag, but it was the early days of you know as Adobe Premiere One. And so, really using these new tools, and it was really amazing to see the whole nonlinear video editing thing. And as we sat in this little college um, apartment, I, you know, to do the audio overdubs, and everything was coming in really organically. And and that was one of my favorite things about that: being able to take all these different inspirations and source material and put them together to make. Uh, this film, and really, it's it's kind of like ten or twelve little films because each of these interviews became their own little segment with a title card uh, before them. So I'll kind of add to the modular nature as the film now can you know become kind of redigitized after a decade in the analog oblivion on, on VHS tape, um, you know, and people can make their own their own version of the film. So by the time that comes around, you can go make your own version, just put in the segments that that you like. Now, I mentioned that the, the segments are kind of sewn together with me, um, doing some overdubs as we arrive in each city. And I kind of give a little intro of the, of the city and who we're going to go talk to, but also kind of um, address some of the um, philosophical underpinnings um, surrounding cannabis normalization. And, you know, so in, in, in some cases I'm talking about, um, you know, international trade laws. In some cases the intro is more about um, medicine and uh, the medical industry, in some cases, it's more about um, the legal implications and, um, and like the, the harm reduction tolerance approach. In other cases, it's kind of American small businesses. So I try to do a little variety, but um, I'm going to hit you with just uh, another intro here that kind of sets the, sets the film off, which kind of gives uh, the foundation that we're coming from. It's really one of not making a statement, but going out there and finding out what the story is. And as my buddy, the Unibonger, always teases me about, the opening line in the Hemp and Road is, Hemp is a plant. Like many plants, cannabis sativa comes in many varieties, each having a unique characteristics and uses. People have cultivated and used different strains of cannabis for thousands of years. This plant is forever ingrained in our heritage, yet we know so little about it. Somewhere along the way, hemp farming and information disappeared as the world entered a new industrial age. Cheap crude oil, old-growth forests, processed food, patented medicines, and synthetic cloth replaced clean-growing hemp. How did this happen? Now the global community faces the filthy legacy of this misguided prohibition. Now We now realize the world's environment, economy, and health isn't really divided by lines on a map. A problem elsewhere might well be caused by a situation somewhere else. It is the same planet, after all. All around the world, people are again looking to hemp as a viable, sustainable crop capable of slowing the pollution and replenishing the earth. Is this possible? Is hemp really that strong, that versatile, that ecological? As we stand on the edge of our future, we have to re-examine the way we do things, all things, and make intelligent decisions based on truth, not hype. What will it take to bring hemp back into the global economy? Where can it grow? What can hemp really produce? Well, some people aren't waiting for answers. They're leaping into action and finding their own reality, searching for a new way of doing things. Who are these people and what motivates them to work so hard against the preconceptions? It is just a plant, but an especially remarkable one. What exactly is him? Well, we're on the road to find out.
2: It's natural fiber, it's natural thing. It's natural fiber, it's natural thing. Natural fiber is a natural thing.
1: and with that kinda, you know, that was us you know, in my mindset as we hopped in the van weekend after weekend uh... going and doing it real time and, and and you know, tapping into people's existence now, all these years later, I've realized that almost everyone in the film is out of, out of, out of business few, in a few cases incarcerated and in a few cases dead and uh... I no longer think I'm omnipotent enough to have caused any of this kind of stuff, but uh... Um, I'm very curious to find out um, now that this film was, you know, sort of developed in the spirit of optimism, but sat through a decade of, of sadness. You know, really what happened is the Bush years and hemp was really pushed to the back burner and, you know, wars and, and chaos and, and, and the drug war continues. And the DEA had all the lawsuits against the, you know, because Canada started growing hemp. But they couldn't export it down to the U.S. because the U.S. wouldn't let it in because of DEA regulations saying that if there's one little scrap of leaf in here and all the hemp seed and all the hemp stock, then it's all illicit substance. So of course it was impossible, and so there's lawsuits and chaos, but just slowed the whole industry. So it really breaks my heart to see a lot of these people. When I see the scene at the end of the film at the commercial industrial hemp symposium in Vancouver, and dozens and dozens of these earnest, hard-working small businesses. And a lot of people borrowed money off their relatives and maxed out their credit cards or whatever to make this business and make this dream. And it's really sad to see all that kind of um, forgotten human potential. So hopefully by uh, bringing this, this film back up to the surface, at least some of their achievements can be um, celebrated. You know, California's come so far now with Proposition 215. And California's really leading the way. And you know, guys like Dennis Perrone uh, or Ralph Sealy in Washington State who passed away um, you know, are almost forgotten. So I, I want to keep uh, the spirit of those people alive, as well as Robert Lunday who executive produced the film, who, uh, who who passed on of a brain aneurysm. And it's like, you know, my heart breaks a little bit. And so I want to, but I know that all of them, at their core, were activists and wanted to spread this message. So hopefully, we could float this out there in a way that can mm, allow people to look back and kind of gain some strength from what some of these other people have have uh, done in the past. As far as this is a creative project and what it's um, and how it's worked, after I made the film, I took it on a little tour and had uh, um, you know rallied up screenings in Vancouver and Seattle at the Settle Hemp Fest, and then down at a New Year's Eve fundraiser down in Portland, where I showed it at a big theater. In Salt Lake City where I showed it at a fancy place right downtown like there was like some like performing arts center and it never looked better you know and it was kind of short notice but I gotta tell you it's like the coolest feeling when you show up there and like 40-50 people have shown up to see your thing you know Not a huge difference between 40 and 400, but there's a huge difference between four and 40. Four people you're like, ah geez, I really should have. Like, you feel you get carbon guilt for coming down there. But everywhere I went, I had these great crowds, but maybe the funnest was in Portland when I was doing this screening and I do a little Q and A at the end, right? And sometimes I give out prizes and I play a little game during the film that's called um, beverage or nuggets. And there's various places, like throughout the film, I, I have a lot of beverages. Like there's a lot of clips of me like, Oh yeah! Oh wow! Right, so sometimes it's kind of embarrassing for me to watch it because I totally noticed that. And I'm always sipping beverages, so... Whenever you see me sipping a beverage in the film, you yell out, Beverage! And I had like a big gift box, and I'll just throw something at it. And then there's a bunch of shots of, uh, of, like, grow rooms. We could film a few grow rooms during the thing. And it really focuses on industrial uh, hemp, but you know, we celebrate the entire cannabis plant, so there's a lot of kind of interesting little remix shots in there, and if you spot those, you also uh, get a, get placed in the winner's circle. But uh, at the end of the little Q&A, uh, he's, you know, gone through a few questions, and he's, uh, two uh, girls stand up and go, hey, I have a question, do you want to smoke a joint with us outside? And I'm like, yes, I do, we're done. And I was like, you can't help it, like, all right, maybe this was all worth it, you know, and, uh, so here's to those uh, two young ladies who uh, made <laughs> made the whole film worthwhile for me.
0: <laughs> Feels like time for a libation.
1: So, um, summer homework uh, here at uh, Uncle Weed Home Office is to, uh, with my uh, band of renegades, is to try and rally up some sort of way to get this film shared out there. But really, do it more than just getting the film. I really think it um, the spirit behind it and the people behind it and kind of um, organizing and sorting, and surfacing all this material for uh, to celebrate these people who participate in it as well as kind of create a, an instructional roadmap for other people who uh, have a, a creative idea that combines art and activism and economics and uh, this can show them a little bit of the pathway. So the final thing that I have to tell you funnest part about making Hemp and Road was getting to uh, use all these cassette tapes that I collected all through traveling because you know I had lots of friends with bands and they had four track recorders and they'd make this music and and then make it on cassette tapes and, and I always kept these things and I and I got to use music that friends had given me from all over the world tapping them from the cassette tapes and digitizing that and making them into mp3s and putting them on the website this was 1996 I'm just telling you and, uh, and real audio and little quick time preview things and Um, So there's a lot of this kind of neat little stuff that got created along the way, including all this uh, some really good music. Uh, So there you go. You got the story of Hemp and Road. You can get links to this in the show notes for this Chugalon episode, or else hempandroad.com does indeed exist and has existed for many a year. Although I would be hard-pressed to remember how the log into it to change anything. But that's something that's going to change. But you can start tracking down some of the uh, the detritus and associated stuff from the film. As well as the uh, unspell-checked uh, production journals. And the whole narration, also unspell-checked. Um, copied and pasted right from simple text of the narration track. Um, so maybe you can even just go make your own Hampton Road if you're so inclined, right? Why not? roll your own. route out from Lynn Valley.
3: When I woke up this morning, things were looking bad Seemed like total silence was the only friend I had A bowl of oatmeal tried to stare me down and won And it was twelve o'clock before I realized I was having no fun Ah, but fortunately I have the key to escape reality and you may see me tonight with an illegal smile it don't cost very much but it lasts a long while won't you please tell the man i didn't kill him A rainbow down a one-way street dead end and all my friends turned out to be insurance salesmen Ah, but fortunately i have the key to escape reality and you may see me today overall trying to get away from all the ears inside the walls I dreamed the police heard everything I thought what then well I went to court and the judge's name was Hoffman ah but fortunately I have the key to escape reality and
1: more beer and cheese to be consumed. Roll your own.